Holy Father, apocalyptic metaphors, hymned pictures. But in the third millennium, what is there about this teaching that would ever compel us to share it with someone else? As our winter's journey continues, enliven Scripture within our minds that we might hear and see how. How we might take the contagious news of this book and share it with our world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'll be very upfront with you. For a generation that works, lives, and parties as if there were no tomorrow, how could the judgment ever be good news? We live in an entertainment-saturated society. Have you been following the brouhaha over David Letterman? Have you been kind of picking up on that? Late-night comedian, and ABC apparently is wooing him and saying, we'll get rid of Ted Koppel, the sacred icon of the news world, and we'll put you in on our network late at night if you'll just come over and just... Oh, was it yesterday or the day before I heard that CBS says, Oh, no, Dave, please stay with us. Another $31 million a year we will give you if you'll stay with us. You know, folks, uh, what we've discovered is that, in fact, television is simply driven, as always, by the almighty dollar. Surprise, surprise. But pardon me for saying this. All of this in the name of silly entertainment. Not that a laugh is not... Medicine for the soul, good medicine at times, but there really is a limit to banal frivolity, wouldn't you say? So we're going to exchange this. I tell you what. Neil Postman, 20 years ago, was prescient when he wrote that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. That's the problem with America. We have just gone entertainment. We've gone gaga over entertainment. Well, to a generation that is so saturated with entertainment, how could the judgment possibly be good news? You'd be surprised today. My, oh my, oh my, I want to share with you how in fact the truth about the end time judgment really is contagious, cheerful, buoyant, with winsome news that you can pass on to your postmodern, post-Christian, secular, essentially pagan friends. I want to share with you a way that this can be transmitted through your contagious life. Now, I need to note that just Thursday, what would that be, two days ago, USA Today. Three of you sent it to me. Thank you very much. USA Today carried a story. Dateline Seattle, where my brother Greg is living, and we just had a wonderful week with him. Headlines. We are discovering, says this research, that in fact America is becoming less religious. You and I were saying that two weeks ago uh, when we were thinking about England. Now we've got the headlines to prove it. Get this. Americans almost all say religion matters, yet more people than ever are opting out. March 7 edition, not just out of the pews, out from under a theological roof altogether. In 2001, more than 29.4 million Americans said they had no religion, more than double the number in 1990. People with no religion, look at this on the screen, with no religion now account for 14% of the nation, up from 8%. In 1990, the, the curve, ladies and gentlemen, the curve is more and more and more into this demographic slice. If that's the case, more and more and more are post-Christian, just as in England, 
then if we continue to embrace our very present strategies of trying to share the good news, we're going to get to less and less and less of the people that are becoming more and more and more. Do you see the conundrum? Which is why it is right for a university campus and congregation like this to kind of say, look, somebody better start asking these questions. How are we going to share the everlasting gospel with people who don't want anything to do with religion? Now, how do you share the good news with such a generation? My friends, there are two ways to present the judgment. Two ways to present the judgment. One way is in your face. That's the Jonah method. Forty days and this city is going to ashes. Well, I need to tell you, the in-your-face method works. It worked for Jonah. Pagan city, post-Christian, not even Christian, of course, and they repented. There are two ways to present the judgment. Number one, it's in your face. That's the Jonah method. Number two, in your heart. That's the Jesus method. Jesus could be in your face, but never when he's dealing with a pagan. He's in your face with the religious types. He's in your heart with the pagan types. I wanted today, for the few minutes we have, to concentrate on the in-your-heart method of Jesus because that's the only method that's going to work with this growing demographic slice that says, don't you come to me with the Bible. I'm not interested. How can I be contagious with the judgment? Open your Bible, please, to Daniel chapter 5. Take a look at a story, an ancient story about judgment. A story that surely is a metaphor of this third millennial society that you and I are a part of. Open your Bible, please, to Daniel chapter 5. I'm in the New Living Translation all through our time together today. Daniel chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to skip around, so you just hang with me, because I'm in high gear right now. All right, if you can't follow on the Bible, read it on the screen. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. A number of years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Drop down to verse 4. They drank toasts from the cups that were brought in from uh, Jerusalem, the sacred cups, to honor their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 6, verse 5, rather, at that very moment, they saw the fingers of a human hand riding on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, verse 6, and his face turned pale with fear. Such terror gripped him that his knees knocked together and his legs gave away beneath him. Drop down to verse 13. So Daniel was brought in before the king and the king said, Hey, are you Daniel who was exiled from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 14. I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. Are you? Can you help me? Daniel answered in verse 17. Daniel said, O king, keep your gifts, give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. Now down to verse 23. For you have defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. Now down to verse 24. So God has sent this hand to write a message. Verse 25. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have failed the test. Parsin means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so it was, verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. Ladies and gentlemen, do you suppose God still has a clock that would suggest that earth is running out of time? 
In the English language, this is where the metaphor comes from. Handwriting on the wall. Is the bloodless hand etching letters of judgment upon the walls of civilization today? Did you get it just this last week? The bulletin of atomic scientists. Did you hear about this just a week ago? They have advanced the hand on the doomsday clock. Let's put it up. Did you see it in the news? Over in the University of Chicago, they have a little office with a fake clock. It's a wooden clock. It doesn't even work. No Swiss mechanisms in it. The, the hour hand is pointed straight up to midnight. It's the minute hand that moves that the minute hand has made it the most ominous clock on earth. They keep changing it depending on where, how close we are to nuclear midnight and disaster. They advance the clock two minutes. Time at the tone, 11.53 p.m. We are seven minutes from midnight, say the scientists. Handwriting on the wall. Enter now contagious, cheerful reason number five, why you are what you are. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, come on, Dwight. This doesn't sound very contagious, cheerful, buoyant, winsome, or attractive to me. I mean, I love contagious reason number one, Jesus is Lord. I love number two, the Sabbath is rest. I love number three, the law is on my heart. I love number four, the Advent is hope. But judgment, please. Nope. Number five today is contagious. In fact, would it be an encouragement to you to learn that the most contagious Christian who ever lived had contagious reason number five in his arsenal of winsome appeals? Let's put Acts chapter 24 on the screen. Paul is in chains and the governor Felix wants to hear Paul. So this is Acts 24, 24. A few days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, sending for Paul who has a chance now to witness, okay? He has one shot at this governor. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. He started out with number one, Christ is Lord. But look, at he got to number five in one sitting. Felix was terrified. Go away for now, he replied. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. And he never called for him. It was, it was, that was his last moment. That was his last shot. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul, did he blow a contagious opportunity? Nope. He seized it and he brought contagious reason number five for the occasion. Because Paul knew what John R.W. Stott once taught me. And I thought this was so insightful, I want to pass it on to you. These are the words of John R.W. Stott. In all evangelism, the great English preacher, that's who he is. In all evangelism, I find it a constant encouragement to say to myself, the other person's conscience is on my side. You just tuck that away in your noggin. Hang on to that. Whenever you're in a conversation, the other person's conscience is actually trying to help you. As you seek to be contagious. Isn't that insightful? Whenever you're witnessing about Jesus, for Jesus, the other woman's conscience is on your side. That person may be a rank pagan just like Felix. But the Spirit of Christ is operative inside that mind and is helping you. You are never alone when you're seeking to become contagious. Oh, I love that. Paul knew Felix's conscience was on his side. So he said, I'm going to tell you about contagious reason number five. I'm going to tell you about the judgment to come. And so he brought it up. Because even a pagan's conscience is on your side. And by the way, Felix immediately knows Paul is heading close to home. And he leaves. Now, folks, I wouldn't recommend shutting down every conversation you get into by jumping to contagious reason number five. Please. There is one, two, three, four that need to precede five. But if you have enough time like Paul did, you can get to five. See, that's the point. 
When you're following Peter's admonition to give a reason for the hope that is within you, don't neglect the example of Paul to talk about the judgment. All right, now you're saying, Dwight, please, how, why would I ever want to bring the judgment up? Oh, I want to show you today. You will never look at the judgment teaching the same again, I promise you. But let's take a little breather right here. I sure need it. Let's go to our study guide right now. It is in your bulletin. Would you pull your study guide out, please? Ushers, let's quickly put extra study guides in the hands of those who need them. Just hold your hand up, please, if you need an extra study guide, and we'll get one to you. By the way, those of you listening on the radio right now, if you will go to our website, www.pmchurch.org, all the presentations and all the study guides are there. If you've missed a few of these along the way, please come and click on to our website. You'll have everything you need. Let's fill out our study guide right now. We are living in a postmodern, post-Christian, pagan world in which the handwriting really is, is on the wall. The doomsday clock is minutes from midnight. And so like Paul, we must share the truth about the coming judgment. Am I going too fast for you? Remember John Stott's observation, the other person's conscience is on my side, which leads us now to contagious reason number five. The judgment is good news. All right? Now look, I want to share with you two shining threads of good news woven through the teaching of the judgment. But before we do, we've got to note the very present reality, the existential reality, as, as our theologians like to say, of the judgment. Let's put down key text number one. Would you write in the verses, please? Six and seven. You remember this key text, I'm sure, if you've studied the Bible for long. This is Revelation chapter 14. Let's take a look at these words. I saw another angel flying through the heavens, carrying the everlasting good news to preach to the people who belong to this world. Pause, stop, stop. Are postmoderns to receive the three angels' message? Messages are the postmoderns. Are post-Christians supposed to receive it? The whole earth, ladies and gentlemen, the whole earth must hear. We've got to find a way, however, to gain a hearing. That's why your contagion is the secret. Cheerful, buoyant. You're going to be buoyant by the, about the judgment before we're through. All right. So, where are we here? So, I, so they, this angel has a good news to preach to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made heaven and earth. The sea and all the springs of water. The time has come. By the way, if you look at verse 14 in that same chapter, Jesus is coming in verse 14, which means the message of judgment now immediately precedes the return of Christ to earth. You see that stained glass window up there? See that one? That's the picture of Revelation 14, 14. That's it right there, sitting on a cloud with a sickle. That's judgment. See, the second coming of Christ. Just before He comes, the judgment. In fact, put that in your study guide, please. The final appeal to this world is the hour of God's judgment has come. Now, folks, this is not unique to Adventist Christians. A judgment before the return of Jesus is taught throughout the Scriptures. You see these subtexts on your, on your study guide? Look those up. In the subtext, what we have here, let's take the first one, Daniel 7, verse 9. Essentially, in Daniel 7, verse 9 and verse 10, Daniel says, I see that the judgment is ready. The judgment sits and the books are opened. 
Let's go to the next one. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Jesus says, you know, when I come, I have my reward with me. That means it's all been taken care of before he comes. Of course, the judgment has to happen before Christ returns to earth. Let's look at the next one. This is Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says, every one of us is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's before Christ returns. And now I do want to read this one with you. This is beautiful. I want you to catch the character of God here. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21. God is speaking. God says, look, if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my laws and do what is just and right, I love this, they will surely live, they will not die, all their past sins will be forgotten. Isn't this wonderful? And they will live because of the righteous things they have done. Do you think, ask the Sovereign Lord, that I like to see wicked people die? Of course not. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Ezekiel 18, 23. Now, the reverse is just as true. However, if righteous people turn to sinful ways, start acting like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? No, of course not. All their previous goodness will be forgotten and they will die for their sins. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the point. God is committed to human freedom and God says, you can change your mind right up to the last minute if you want. Some people say, well, once you make your mind up, you can never change it again. No, freedom doesn't work that way. You can opt out of this deal any point you wish to. So God is like, kind of like, you know, like Regis Philman in uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And please don't confuse God with Regis Philman. But Regis Philman will always ask the question, is that your final answer? Because you, you may change. I'll let you change. Right up until the last second, God's the same way. That's beautiful. He is so committed to human freedom. Wow. But let's be honest. The reason we find the judgment such bad news is because we operate out of the paradigm of our Western court system, do we not? <laughs> there are two very high-profile court cases going on right now in our nightly news. You're following them. The trial of Andrea Yates. The mother who allegedly drowned her five children in a mad act of schizophrenic confusion. And there's another trial. Are you following this one? We'll put the picture up. The trial of the San Francisco husband and wife who owned that dog that mauled to death a young physical education instructor right outside her door in the same apartment. We saw, you know, this is suppertime news in America. And the other night when we said, please pass the potatoes, we saw the defense attorney for the wife in this dog-killing killer dog court, the defense attorney goes down on her hands and knees and with tears in her eyes. She said, do you know how my defendant tried, tried to pull the dog off? But we've become jaded by these sensational, high-profile, nightly suppertime news stories. They color our perception of the courtroom judgment paradigm. The only problem is the Bible truth about the judgment is not a Western paradigm. The Bible is coming from the other side of the world. So in the Bible, judgment is predominantly good news. And that's why I want to share with you two threads. Two threads beautifully woven through the tapestry of judgment. Postmodern people want these threads. They're not asking you to be in their face. They want you watch how you can connect with them through these two, two threads. In fact, let's put it on the screen. These are the two threads, shining threads of good news woven into the tapestry of God's judgment. In the judgment, God writes the wrongs. Would you write that down, please? God writes the wrongs for that key text. That's the next key text. Would you? 
I'm going to just look it up in my Bible because this is Jesus' parable in Luke 18. Would you go to Luke 18 and write in verses 1 through 8, it's the parable. You'll recognize the parable immediately. You remember the story about a, a, a widow? A widow who kept bugging a judge. You remember that? She was just bugging that judge. Avenge me of my adversary. Please, get me off the hook. I am being harassed. Oh, judge, come to my defense. And you remember the judge just kept saying, get out. Oh, come on, lady, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. But do you remember finally the judge said, look, I fear neither God nor man, but this woman is driving me batty. I'm going to have to give her help. So the wicked, evil judge gives her help. And then Jesus says, verse 6, Learn a lesson from this evil judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who plead with him night and day? Will he keep putting them off? Wow. Jesus says the issue in judgment is justice. Would you write that down in your study guide? God's judgment brings justice. In the judgment, God rights the wrongs, which is a meaningful, vital, stirring metaphor for you to share with your postmodern friends. Now listen to me carefully. While postmodern friends have given up on organized religion, many, many, many of them, 29.4 million now in the United States, okay? They've said, I don't want anything to do with organized religion. They have not given up on morality, justice, and the longing to see wrong turned into right. I'm reading a book right now. It's a brand new book, 2002. Title of the book, The News About the News. I'm kind of a news uh, junkie. And so here's this book written by two Washington Post editors, Leonard Downey Jr. and Robert Kaiser, in which they assert that journalists are bound by a social contract with the public to preserve, get this, one of America's greatest assets, our culture of accountability. Americans expect their leaders to behave responsibly and usually, usually take remedial action when they don't. Goodbye, Congressman Gary Condit. You got voted out this last week. Why? Because we have a culture of accountability and you didn't come clean with us. Goodbye, Enron. We have a culture of accountability. Postmoderns want to see the wrongs righted. They may not even breathe the name of God, but they want to see wrong turned into right. So for your postmodern friends, you've got the perfect opportunity to show the shining thread woven through, through the judgment teaching, and that is God is convening a... God is just like you. He wants to right the wrongs, and so He's convening a judgment at the end of history where the wrongs will be finally righted. My dear postmodern friend, you say to him, guess what? What you want, God wants. Are you perplexed with the Holocaust? That brutal inhumanity of man to man. Are you perplexed with it? God has a day of reckoning coming. Can you understand the Rwanda genocide? Such evil perpetrated in the name of cultural, racial distinctions. Do you want to see justice done? I'm finishing up a book right now by a man who went to Rwanda as head of the United Nations Genocide Investigation. The name of the man is Gary Haugen. Title of the book, Good News About Injustice. He once was a part of the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. And he writes, describes his first trip to Rwanda in the killing fields. And I want you to read this. This is, this is dynamite. By the time I arrived in Kibuya, 
to direct the UN military in digging up the two mass graves where all those broken bodies had eventually been flung. It was easy to think of them as exactly that, nameless, faceless, decaying, disconnecting body parts. But at Kibuya, as at every massacre site in Rwanda, a painful glimpse of the truth always came through. This was not an undifferentiated mass of lifeless clods on the inevitable dust heap of a fallen world. In truth, each body part, now dull and limp in the mud, was actually a unique bearer of the very image of God, a unique creation of the divine maker, individually knit within a mother's womb by the Lord of the universe. For as difficult as it was to imagine, as he's looking at these bodies, each crumpled mortal frame had indeed come from a mother, one single mother who somewhere in time had wept tears of joy and aspiration over her precious child, a child endowed with a mysterious spark of Adam. We would never number all the mother's children in these mass graves, but their father in heaven had numbered even the very hairs of their heads. Wow! Don't you think God wants to right the wrongs that have been perpetrated on this planet? Your postmodern friends will love that picture of God. Wow. Contagious reason number five. There is a day of reckoning coming when at last the God of this universe will right the wrongs that have been perpetrated by the diabolical enemy of the human race through his possessed agents of evil. The judgment is good news because a God of infinite love is going to right the wrongs. Which, by the way, is why in the book of the Psalms, you will read this prayer over and over and over. Oh God, judge me, I beg of you. This is not a prayer for acquittal. This is a pleading for justice. Right the wrongs, oh God. I put these two subtexts down. Look at this. Psalm 26, verse 1, vindicate. In the King James, it says, judge me. It, newer translations, vindicate me, O God. Look at Psalm 135, verse 14. The Lord will vindicate. He will judge. He will vindicate His people. Please write that in your study guide. The judgment is good news because God's justice is going to have the last word. And by the way... That's the truth about justice and judgment postmodern hearts will resonate with. And before we go to the final thread, I need to say right here, I hope your heart resonates with it too because some of you have suffered at the hands of another. Injustice has been meted out to you by life, by people. And no matter how hard you've tried or how long you've pleaded, justice has not been granted to you. But there is a God in this universe who sees and knows everything and who declares vengeance, read justice. Justice is mine, not yours. I will repay, Hebrews 10, verse 30. When in the judgment God has the last word, then your cause will be vindicated and justice will be served. Two threads woven into the tapestry, shining threads. Thread number one, there it is. In the judgment God writes the wrongs and here comes thread number two. In the judgment God erases your wrongs. Forget about the world. Let's close by thinking about ourselves. What a God. When He could throw the book at us in the judgment, God offers mercy instead. Before we end with a story about the infamous six, jot down these beautiful promises for every heart destined for the judgment, you, me, and our postmodern friends and colleagues and associates. Key text number three, the judgment is good news. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. I love this text. Read this. 
Once again, God speaking, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Speaking of God, he says, bring your sins to me and I will have a burial at sea. I've told you before how my dad and I, on a hushed ocean liner on the way to Italy from Japan, my dad and I early in the morning watched a burial at sea. It's a somber moment. Flag-draped coffin shoots off the ramp as it's lowered, sinks into the ocean. It's weighted to go to the bottom. God says, if you wish, bring your sins to me and I will have a burial at sea with all of your guilt and sins. What a God. This is the God of the judgment. Key text number four, the judgment is good news. 1 John 1, 9, and then right in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Take a look at this. If we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. Hallelujah. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, I know you're going to sin. There is someone to plead for you before the Father. The old King James says you have a lawyer, you have an advocate in heaven. He is Jesus Christ, the one who pleases God completely. And I love this. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He takes away not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. There is nobody on this planet who needs to be afraid of the judge. The judge has already dealt with every human sin. Wow. The God who hung on Calvary. Those nailed open arms belong not only to the defense attorney. They, do, they belong to the judge himself. Read John 5. He is the judge. One and the same. How could news be any better than that? Look at that cross. Every time you see the cross, that's your judge who's died for your sins. I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you did last night. God is ready to bury that as well and to give it a burial at sea. If you let him, it says if we confess our sins. Oh, I love this next one. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Let's put the text on the screen. Will you go straight to the text, please? Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore he is able once and forever, speaking of Jesus, to save everyone who comes to God through Him. He lives forever to plead with God on our behalf. Is there one reason you can think of not to come to Jesus, not to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm telling you folks, how could the news be any better than this about the judgment? One last text, Hebrews 8, verse 12. Let's go straight to the text, 8, verse 12. And I will forgive their wrongdoings. And I love this. One chapter later. And I will never again remember their sins. What more could you ask for? You have a judge who is your defense attorney and he's got amnesia. What is wrong with that picture? Nothing. I'll forget. I'll forget. I'll forget everything you bring to me. I'll bury it in the depths of the sea and then I'll forget where it was. The headline caught my eye have it right here. As I was reading the sports section of my newspaper last summer, some errors can't be erased. How would you like to meet that headline in the judgment? Some errors. Oh, by the way, Dwight, nice to have you in the judgment. Uh, by the way, some errors cannot be erased. Hope yours aren't part of them. Apparently in the sports world, fans or fan addicts have a hard time forgiving and forgetting. Like the infamous six. Six NCAA football officials who failed to keep track of the number of downs left mistakenly gave the losing team a fifth down with five seconds to go. And because they made that horrible blunder, Colorado took the ball on the fifth down. Can't have five. Ran it across the goal line. One 
the game and went that year to win the national championship because of a mistake six officials made and they have never been forgotten. They're called the infamous six. All were, all were, what's the word? Uh, they weren't fired. One, one retired on the spot. The, the others were relieved for a while. But that isn't the saddest story. I got it right here in the same newspaper article. Let me read this one to you. In, in the 1994 World Cup match between the United States and Colombia, a U.S. defenseman, okay, this is soccer, this is soccer, folks, John Harks kicks the ball, crossing past in front of the Colombian net. So the ball is going, it's not going in the net, it's going across. One of their superstars, his name, Andre Escobar, did you already see it on the screen? There he is circled. Andre Escobar. He, he intercepts the ball to try to make sure it doesn't get near the net, but in the movement of his legs, he accidentally kicks the ball into the net, his own net himself, and the U.S. wins the game 2-1. to one. I quote, The Americans won 2-1 to one in one of the most stunning upsets in World Cup play. The superstar made a mistake. A few days later, he went home. He took his family out to a restaurant. But unfortunately, he ran into a fanatic who could neither forgive nor forget. And he was gunned down, killed on the spot. Aren't you glad that the headline in the judgment does not read, Some errors cannot be erased. My dear friends, that is not the truth about God's judgment day. For with God there is not an error, nor is there a sin that cannot be erased. The judge of this earth is the Savior of the world. Hallelujah. Who longs to be a forever friend with every postmodern heart that still does not know Him. We are in the judgment now. The doomsday clock is minutes from midnight. The handwriting is on the wall. But guess what? You possess the best news of all. And that is, the judge is on our side. If only we would turn our cases and our lives over to Him. With a God like that, why would not the judgment be good news? I'm going to make an appeal right here. I'm going to skip the closing hymn. Go right to an appeal. Is there somebody here today that needs to make certain your case is in the hands, the nail-scarred hands of this judge. You may have lived a life yesterday, yesteryear, doesn't matter. A life that you do not want to take to the judgment. You do not want to take this life to the judgment, please. I have to have this life buried in the depths of the sea. I, I can't make it if it's not buried. Is there a man here today who by standing to his feet where he is, would say to Jesus, I give you my case. Oh God, take my sins, wash them, bury them in the depths of the sea, and let me rest secure tonight that my life is in the hands of the judge who is my forever friend. Is there a man here today who would send that message to heaven? If so, sir, would you just stand to your feet? I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Just stand to your feet. God bless you. Is there another man here? God bless you. Is there another man here? God bless you. Anybody else? I want to put my life in the hands, the nail-scarred hands of the judge. You know what? Come to think of it, I'd like to stand right now myself. 
Is there another man who would stand with me today? And by that standing, you say, yes, Jesus. I'm not proud of the way I've lived these last few days and weeks, but my life is in your hands. I make sure that you know. Is there another man who would stand? Put your life, your case, God bless you. Put your case. Anybody else? All the men who want Jesus as your defense attorney in heaven, would you please stand? Now your wives are seeing that you stand. Your friends are seeing that you stand. It's an important, important confession to make. Important witness to make. Is there a woman here today who says, you know, if I had to go to the judgment now with the life as I've lived it, I, I would not go. I, I cannot go. There are women who would stand today and say, Jesus, into your hands. I commit my case. I commit my spirit. There are women here who wants Christ as defense attorney and judge. Good news. Judge me, O God. Right the wrongs. Erase the wrongs. Please, judge me, O God. O God, we are a people on our feet today. We have taken lightly the hour of His judgment is now. We have banished it from our thinking. We have tried to live as if there were no accountability. But the postmodern world, big on accountability, reminds us that that, that gifted emphasis and focus, in fact, is you. You're big on accountability too. And you said in Ezekiel, look it, you're free. I won't force you. You choose. Please choose life. I don't want anybody to choose the opposite. And so we've stood to our feet, Holy Father. We stand because we choose life. We choose our advocate who is our judge. We choose you, O God, to be sovereign, almighty, and friend. We choose you. Let the record show we've stood today before the universe that we would be your friend on earth. Contagious for Jesus. Wherever we go, we would be contagious for our Master in whose name we praise you. Let all the people say, Amen and Amen. God go with you and give you grace and peace as you journey with Him into a new week.